Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is publisher, journalist, and media entrepreneur, John Heaston. In the show, Heaston talks about the story that initially drew him into the media business, how his publishing career developed alongside a tumultuous media ecosystem, and why alternative news media is an essential part of our lives. Heaston also talks about the importance of citizen and community-led news, and what the future holds for the media more broadly. The thing about alternative news, because we don't have this daily cycle, we have the luxury of looking at what everybody else is doing and thinking, well, what's missing? What voice isn't heard? What angle isn't been approached? You know, and at that point, we had two weeks to sit back and say, well, maybe we should look at this. John Heaston is the founder, publisher, and editor of Pioneer Publishing, a group of media channels that includes an alternative metropolitan news monthly called The Reader, a bilingual community news monthly called El Perico, and OmahaJobs.com. He has served on the board of the Mildred D. Brown Memorial Study Center, where he helped renew America's oldest black female-founded and run newspaper, The Omaha Star. Through the Association of Alternative News Media, the National Association of Hispanic Publications, and the National Newspaper Publishers Association, called the Black Press, Heaston is helping reshape the national conversation around saving and supporting local media through diverse, locally owned publishers. Among several community endeavors, Heaston is a founder of both the Omaha Entertainment and Arts Awards and the Maha Music Festival. John Heaston, welcome to Lives. Thanks, Stuart. Great to be here. I want to talk about the arc of the media business from where it was to where it is now and to where it is going. To get into that, I wanted to start with the media in your life. When was uh, that moment when you look back and you realize you were really paying attention to the media? I mean, I can genuinely say I really didn't pay start paying attention, you know, until I was probably in college. But the the first time I really remember following the media and kind of being struck with it was TV news, and it was the um, Iranian hostage crisis leading up to Reagan's uh, election in 1980. So I would have been nine years old, and um, I was raised an army brat in a divided house politically you know, sided with my dad in general on those fronts, uh, have since drastically shifted towards my mom's side. Uh, and remember being just excited that Reagan won. I thought it was a thing. And, uh, you know, there'd be a new day in America. And only years later did I come to understand, you know, how dark some of that was. Was your household, your upbringing, your family context rich in media or, or was it pretty typical? I would say pretty typical. I mean, they were big media consumers. I mean, we got the paper every day. We always read it. Uh, my dad has subscription to um, American Heritage. He was a history graduate uh, before becoming an attorney. And we watched the evening news. I mean, that was kind of a, a family thing, I think, for them. And so uh, nothing special. There was no journalists or media people in the family or just otherwise kind of a connection to that. You know, that kind of came with my time at UNO. And my 
first venture into publishing uh, a free student college monthly that was nonprofit called Sound News and Arts that ran from 2002, so I would have been 21, to 2004. It was a precursor to the reader. You mentioned being an army brat. What was your childhood like then as an army brat? You know, we moved every three years. It was a fact of life. So you knew it was going to happen. Generally, except for the last three years, we were living on army bases and every other family was in the same situation. And so every other kid was in the same situation. And we knew we'd know each other for a few years. And whenever that time came, you know, for the new assignment, they'd move on. It, I think, did a few things in the sense that we all learned how to adapt and change in, in new environments. And it made us particularly tight as a, a family unit. And so, you know, don't regret it at all. Moved to Omaha when I was a junior in high school and finished high school here. It was a little more traumatic for my younger siblings who had to move in junior high and, you know, the pressure cooker of being a teen. Uh, but yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was a great upbringing. I wonder if moving so often and experiencing so many different ways to relate to the world, to relate to other people, so many different kinds of culture that you were exposed to, if there was something in that 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 was motivating to you to be interested in what the media was, I'm curious if that sparked in any way this sense that you wanted to study journalism, uh, you wanted to go to UNO to be involved in media. Though I never thought about being involved in media or journalism at all. Last thought, you know, from my mind, I will say it did give me a comfort level in approaching new situations and new people. That's very handy as a journalist, because that's really what you do every day, all all day. Also gave me the, a new kind of drawing board you know, every time that you moved. So you had a bigger sense of possibilities because you were always kind of wiping the slate clean. You didn't kind of live under, you know, oh, you're so-and-so with so-and-so and and your parents are so-and-so and, and, you know, my parents went to school with your cousins and, you know, kind of this Omaha thing. I I knew about it because I heard about it. And when I moved to Omaha, you know, it very much was who are you hanging out with? Oh, or is, or is this their uncle? You know, my family's very uh, involved in the Catholic Creighton kind of circle. My grandfather taught there for about 30 years. You know, some people talk about Omaha being, um, where did you go to high school? You know, where did you go to school? And we talk about high schools, you know, this is where did you go to school? And we're talking about parishes. So no, I, I think it gave me skills, but it, I'd never, cross my mind that that would be something I could do or would want to do. But you did get involved in media. So, so what was that first realization that you thought, I'm interested in journalism? And I'm assuming that journalism came before you actually became a publisher. They kind of came at the same time. What happened with me was I was never going to go to college in Omaha or live in Omaha post high school. I mean, that was the plan, right? Get out of high school, graduate and see Omaha. Uh, I was going to head to some big city. I was going to, you know, I did that for a year or two and then came back. And at the time, uh, there wasn't a lot going on or places to go for people in their early 20s, late, late teens, 18, 19, 20, 21. And that, that time frame, you know, 
there was the Ranch Bowl, and this is the late 80s, early 90s, and it's, you know, still big hand, or big hair band time. And there wasn't really venues for local bands. And we knew a number of bands, you know, that had played our high school dances, and we wanted to see them, and they wanted to play. And so I got involved with the group. Uh, There's a few of us that would rent halls and put on shows, and it was, you know, something to do. And, you know, it was very democratic in how we did it. All the bands got an equal split. We took an equal split as the promoter, you know, $5 at the door. And, you know, I think my first, the first show we did was at the FOE Hall on 23rd and Douglas. Uh, I think it was Frontier Trust. It might have been 311. It might have been Pioneer Disaster, precursors to a lot of the Saddle Creek kinds of things. And so we were doing that in different halls, you know, as it would kind of come together and we would get artists and we uh, decided to up our game and do a New Year's Eve show at Sokol, now the Admiral, on 13th and Martha. It was one of the largest halls. It was larger than anything that we had done. It'll hold a couple thousand people. And so I called to rent it for New Year's Eve of 1990. So I was 19 at the time. And I'll never forget it. The gentleman who answered the phone when I called and I asked about renting it for New Year's Eve said, no, I think we're going to do our own party. We think we're going to sell the building. And I, you know, had the audacity and to be, how could you do this? This is a beautiful hall. This is where, you know, bands play. It was an institution there on the near South side and South of downtown. It's where Jim Hartung and Phil Cahoy trained their whole lives under Phil's dad and had gone on to gold and silver medals in the Olympics. And so for somebody who had not really grown up in Omaha, I had this really driven sense of Omaha history, but my family came from that neighborhood. So there was a house built by my great, great grandfather and his brothers uh, as a wedding gift to his son-in-law and daughter, my great grandparents. So it was the house my grandma grew up in. That's uh, just a block away from Sokol. And so by association, you know, I felt like maybe this was kind of my neighborhood too. My great uncle at the time could not believe I was interested in getting involved with Sokol. You know, he's like, you don't speak Czech. What are you doing? They used to throw me out of there. Those bohunks didn't like these German Irish guys coming around trying to steal their girls, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) Kind of like, okay. And he told me, the one who had answered the phone, Ray Lansky, told me, well, if you feel so strongly about this, why don't you come down to our next meeting? And so like any of these kind of immigrant societies that have been built, Sokol is a Czech-American society with a huge emphasis on gymnastics and a sound body, sound mind, sound spirit. But it's where the Czech community kind of gather, as well as there's the Italian-American and then the German-American and and all, you know, everybody kind of had there when they migrated here, places where they would gather, get settled, learn learn the town. And um, I showed up at that and a number of the older board members at Sokol, I was asking questions and they pulled me aside and said, uh, the reason the building is closing is because of a fire inspection. And um, we don't really trust the results. You should look into this young man. And so not knowing any better, I said, I thought I would. So the fire inspection on its face had said that there were a number of improvements that needed to be made, including the full installation of a a sprinkler system, a fire suppression system. And uh, there was one quote to install that that came to 1.4 million on a building that was maybe worth a couple hundred thousand in 1990. And so 
I thought that there was a law that you had to get three bids if you were a nonprofit, which is totally not true. It's a best practices thing. But on the basis of that, I called the World Herald Metro Desk and said, you've got to do a story about this. There's this thing going on at Sokol. And front page of the World Herald, October 9th, 1990, was Sokol Hall in quotes, checking, C-Z-E-C-H-I-N-G, checking out. They had interviewed a couple of folks who had been, you know, very familiar with the building. And the whole story was, what a great time we've had, but it's over. Nothing about this bid and, and the cost. And, and second paragraph in the back was some stranger showed up at the last meeting. And I was outraged, as you can only be at 19. You know, I thought what journalism and the daily newspaper did was print the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, not understanding that there were people behind that and, you know, how... I understand so much more now about how that process works, but at that time was talking to anybody that would listen and said, here's my story. Can you believe this? And I ran into a group that was running the Creightonian at Creighton, which is a student newspaper. And they said, well, we can do our own paper. And so I figured out what it would cost to print a newspaper, called around, talked to printers. You know, they kind of fed me some of the information so I knew what was going on. And I figured out what an ad would cost. You know, I kind of did the math. And my first appointment was with Ree Shunlau at the Bemis Arts Center, which was in its old spot in the Bemis Bag Building. I walked in and I said, we want to do this. And, you know, we're going to say things that aren't being said. And, and we're going to have poetry and art. And she listened to me and she goes, all right, we'll buy a quarter page. And, you know, I just kind of, my jaw hit the floor and I thought, boy, this advertising thing's just as easy as it gets. Uh, she wrote me a check on the spot. I said, what do you want to do with the ad? She hand drew this <laughs> ad with a circle, Bemis Arts Center address, phone number, said, handed me the paper. And uh, yeah, it was, it's the easiest sale I've ever had. It, it, it uh, has not, uh, it's only gotten harder uh, since, but we were able to do that. And it's just an incredible crew of creatives that came together from Creighton and UNO. It's Barry Bedlin at the Creightonian, uh, Sue Ling Toomer uh, was also at the Creightonian. Ken Guthrie was over at Creighton, John Galt, Ed Stastny. There's just a whole host of people that kind of rallied around this thing. And we put signs up saying, you know, free paper, join us. And, and so there was a lot of energy and excitement. And when it came around and Sokol didn't sell, which is kind of another story, I kind of had the bug at that point. And there was a group that approached me and said, we want to do a paper like the Chicago Reader. You're doing this Sound News and Arts, which was the free student monthly. Uh, would you join us? And at that point, I had the bug. So nine hours short of a finance degree, I dropped out of UNO and started the Reader in 1994. And so now I'm really into journalism. What was the media landscape like at that time? You know, I was standing on the shoulders of giants I didn't know very well. And I'll give you some examples. One of the most important people in our organization that keeps things stitched together right now is our creative services director, Lynn Sanchez. She was the culture editor right when we were starting with another alternative news weekly in Omaha called The Metropolitan. That had been existing from, I think, the early 80s up until early 90s. Prior to that, there was 
what I consider probably one of the first alternative news weeklies. There was a weekly newspaper in Omaha called the Omaha Sun. It was one of the first weekly newspapers to win a Pulitzer for investigative reporting. Warren Buffett owned it. Uh, Stan Lipsy was the publisher. He went on to be the publisher at the Buffalo News. And Paul Williams was the editor who went on to author one of the founding books on investigative reporting and was a founder of a group called Investigative Reporters and Editors, uh, which has probably been my longest professional affiliation in terms of the journalism I'm, I'm most interested in. Uh, or was most interested in. And I think that is uh, somewhat of a hallmark of, of the reader and Chris Bowling and Bridget Fogarty, especially on our news team, have been doing that kind of uh, deeper dives, that kind of um, reporting. But for the landscape in general, it was at that point it become very mainstream in the sense that there was still some breath in radio news, but not much. Radio news was really big when radio came out. But as television came in and the daily newspaper kind of grew its dominance, it kind of faded. The largest player in the market, probably half the local media market by sales volume, would have been the daily newspaper, the World Herald. They had one of the largest market penetrations in the country, I think only second to Buffalo, where they traded first and second. And then we had the, I think we only had three television stations then. I think, you know, Fox came along shortly after if I recall correctly. So we had a lot of breaking news operations. So the investigative enterprise, and dare I say kind of watchdog, I mean, the thing about alternative news, because we don't have this daily cycle, we have the luxury of looking at what everybody else is doing and thinking, well, what's missing? What voice isn't heard? What angle isn't been approached? And so borrow alternative media success is that we're alternative and that we can iterate off of other people's work. And so that was really where we kind of started making our name is we would find stories, maybe like this Sokol story, it's a great example, or for whatever reason, uh, the reporter got misdirected, you know, the editors weren't too hot, or there was just another story that they had to cover, right? I mean, it's just high volume news. You know, you're writing how many stories a day, you know, at least one in a, in a lot of cases that we've got a week, you know, and at that point we had two weeks to sit back and say, well, maybe we should look at this. And, and the other big opportunity for us was the cultural coverage. So culture, cu cultural coverage at that point was your traditional fine arts institutions. It was never the cog factory, right? Which was the all ages, you know, DIY homegrown music venue, right? It was never Sokol Underground, which is where, you know, 1% uh, and the waiting room and all of that kind of sprung out of. It wasn't local bands. And that became our bread and butter. You know, it wasn't local artists. You know, it, was, it wasn't the Blue Barn Theater as much back then, right? I mean, they, they were kind of an off-off Broadway if there was an Omaha version of that, you know, kind of sense to it. But we loved those shows, right? They were so off from what was the traditional fare that those were feature stories for us. And so... What we didn't know is that out of your top 100 markets, only Omaha and El Paso did not have an alternative news weekly. And so we walked right into something that was kind of a proven model. And it was very fortunate that some of the legends of the business had Nebraska roots and were very generous with their time and guidance. And so that really helped shape our growth. And it kind of took off from there. 
it's certainly a much more fractured landscape <laughs> these days. And let me step back real quick, right? So El Perico started in uh, 1999, and that was really this big growth in the Latino community. The Immigration Reform Act of 86 have kind of brought a lot of people out of the shadows into the, into the economy. And there was a group in South Omaha, a third, fourth generation Mexican-Americans, who saw what was going on and knew this community needed to be served. And it started as almost an ad piece, right? Here are the local businesses that you would be interested in. And they wanted to work in the journalism. The Omaha Star, of course, had, had been doing its thing the whole time. And the mission of the Omaha Star, I love it. It's that evil shall not go unopposed and good shall be championed. It provided this invaluable service in telling the rest of the story for the black community. Because if they followed what was covered in the mainstream media, it wasn't very flattering. And, you know, there's this saying in journalism, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. People love that stuff, right? It's the same reason we slow down when there's a car accident. but repetitively over time out of context it creates real damage in our community fabric and the omaha star was the only bulwark against that it's going to be 85 years old this year so you've said that we've arrived at this place today which is this more fractured landscape but what is the landscape today and how did we journey here yeah so as we had this Second cultural wave, things like Blue Barn in the theater, things like Bemis in the visual arts, things like 1% and Saddle Creek Records on the music side. Uh, and there's others, right? I mean, these are just kind of some of the big examples. That created an advertising base that allowed us to take off. But for the rest of the media, right at that time is when that base was starting to erode. And it was hitting community media like the Omaha Star probably hardest. As jobs left that community, you know, that eroded its advertising base. It, it probably had an impact on its subscri subscription base. I mean, the one of the amazing things about the Omaha Star is they've got a very solid subscription base and have. And so for local TV and a local daily newspaper, they just kept extending kind of that dominance and kind of redeploying into other areas. So there was kind of a steady, we were still on a steady growth trend when we, when we were in there. The internet was coming alive, you know, in the early aughts. The iPhone, you know, really accelerated the, the development and use of that when we started having these computers in our pockets. And Google, you know, I can remember the first time somebody said, check out the search engine, Google started developing its uh, text-based ads, search-driven ads, which initially handicapped the phone book business, right? Because before, if you wanted a product or service, you went to the phone book. You looked up the heading and you looked at the ads and, you know, you called, you know. Now you're, of course, doing that research online and you're generally using Google for it. Then Facebook came along, of course, and it, became the largest dominator of our online time. We're connecting, we're looking at our news feeds, we're commenting, we're sharing, or we're just lurking. We're you know, <laughs> seeing what other people are doing. And, you know, cable's having its explosion. YouTube is coming up. And so people's attention started getting very divided. 
And with that, the advertising dollars followed. And so that really started play towing in, in, I think, the aughts. And in 2008, when the economy went off the cliff, half the advertising market pretty much disappeared overnight. It was the beginning of a really dark period for a lot of media. Anybody that had, had built their dominance in that advertising space. Uh, people talk about it as the, kind of also the beginning of the unbundling of the news. So if the daily newspaper was supposed to be all things to all people, was really kind of more things to the people that could pay for it. Now, all of a sudden, there's going to be an online sports site, or maybe there's a, a sports magazine covering the Huskers, right? One of our top news interests. And now we're fracturing the audience even more and fracturing some of those ad dollars even more. Cable, you know, had obviously added hundreds of channels. YouTube added millions of channels. And so that was really the beginning of the end and, or the beginning of the, the big decline. We'll just put it that way. And, and we're still seeing those effects today, right? The World Herald, which at one time had 120, I think, full-time on its editorial staff. I think it was recently 40 and it just lost another 10. So it's down to 30. There's going to be a real challenge there, right? There's this daily print infrastructure to get the news, get it on a press, get it in a car, put it on your doorstep, and you're getting news on the second on your phone. And so it's really, it's a, it's a challenge. I'm so glad I don't own a printing press and I'm, I'm in that space because I think that there are a lot of good journalists there that are still operating a little bit under kind of that old structure. I think the, Television news is kind of, you know, still taken off with this, but they're going to be facing some of their own challenges as carriage fees get reduced. People are cutting the cord. And as streaming technology makes broadcast level quality, you know, available to all, it's going to make it tougher for those three, four stations to compete. And we've already seen one kind of check out a little bit uh, and to do their local news as a regional effort. Right. So, it's been, in a lot of ways, managing the downside. And we, we were not immune to that. We, we completely had to deal with that. I mean, we were 100% print advertising based. What was different for us is when 2008 hit, I borrowed a bunch of money and I was really set on this mission to do Spanish language phone books across the Midwest. Because when we bought what was ABM Enterprises, the company behind El Perico in 2004, one of their product offerings, their most lucrative, was something called Directorio Latino. And it was a listing of businesses, um, but with the Spanish headings. And phone books, you print once a year and you charge a lot of money for them. And we already had the distribution infrastructure in place. Uh, so that it was tremendously profitable. It, it helped underwrite a lot of journalism. And so, heck, let's do this in Wichita. Let's do this in Des Moines. Let's do this in Sioux Falls. And then 2008, you know, this great recession kind of came and nobody, and then the internet was kind of really coming into its own because it was more affordable and more efficient. And so the phone book business just blew up all of a sudden. And here I was having borrowed all this money to do this phone books and I needed to find money fast. And so I asked my advertisers who weren't, didn't want to advertise at that point, is there anything I could help with? And they said, uh, yeah, we're trying to figure out this Facebook, Google thing. And so we got into agency services at that point. It's pioneermedia.me. And we're fairly unique among local media to have such a robust 
operation in that space. And it's really insulated us against the advertising changes. That works really well at our size. You don't need to have a lot of clients to replace our advertising volume. That's a lot harder, you know, at a daily newspaper size. So being smaller and more nimble in this case kind of became, you know, an advantage. And so that was, I think, kind of where we are now. All media have diversified. They're offering these kinds of services. It'll be very interesting to see how this develops. What is the community's relationship with the media, the content, the actual news, the the stories we're telling ourselves? How has that shifted? Why is alternative news media of any relevance to a community? Well, so for the audience that now has unlimited channels, you know, and pretty much unlimited referring sources, I think if you ask a lot of Americans these days where they get their news, they'll say social media. Well, there are no journalists working, you know, directly for Meta or, um, you know, the company behind uh, TikTok. So they're sharing other content, which is, of course, led to these lawsuits and this program they've got running in Australia where Google is paying a, a, some kind of a fee. I don't know if I call it a licensing fee, but something similar, mostly to Rupert Murdoch because he owns most of the daily news operations in Australia. Um, so it's great for him. It wouldn't be great for an organization like ours. I think that... The news was so ubiquitous because it was so profitable. You got it on TV. There usually was a newspaper lying around. And particularly, you know, with this next generation that grew up with the internet, of which I'm a little late to that game, but I would still kind of consider myself there. We don't know really in some ways what we've lost or what we're missing. And I see a growing, growing awareness around this. And it was probably even, it was at a squish talk at your house. And, you know, something had come up about some issue. And everybody's like, well, what, why isn't the media covering this? And then all of a sudden, it, it was probably just my mind, but it felt like there was this silence and everybody turned and looked at me. And, you know, basically I had to say, hey, we're trying. <laughs> Uh, we've only got this much in resources, right? It's, advertising's gotten that much harder. You know, the, the financial model just got broken. And I'd like to think that we are finding our, our way out of that. I don't know that I'm seeing enough that are. I think they're stumbling to kind of this diversified revenue mix. Um, but there's a lot of damage to repair before you even invest in growing new and additional journalism. Where that leads us, you know, I've talked for a second about reinventing the revenue model. I think journalism needs to be reinvented itself, right? And I think this is the role that people have. The truth of the matter is, is that some of the biggest stories of our time are broken by, you know, a person on the street with their phones. We would not know about George Floyd unless that brave teenager had stopped and, you know, through just a horrible thing, filmed that and shared it. So what I like to say is once upon a time, you needed an industrial printing press or a broadcast license to, to reach an audience. The internet blows that up. And in this case, we are no longer information gatekeepers, which was always the traditional model. You tell us the news and we decide what we're going to tell everybody else. 
and how much of it we're going to tell. And, you know, if we even get it right now, everybody can have a voice. Everybody can have a blog. Everybody can have a social media account and can build an audience. So how do we engage the community, engage news consumers uh, in that conversation, becoming referees or moderators? The other example I like to say is build the news and not break it. Breaking news really feeds, feeds this short attention span, instant gratification. It does not necessarily help us understand the causes. It's just a litany of symptoms. And if I had a dollar for every time somebody said, you need to write about this, John, uh, I could probably retire. But the fact of the matter is, is our team can write about it and we're going to draw some attention to it. You know, we got a, a decent sized audience, but next week, next issue, we're going to move on to writing about something else. And so if there's a way we can help you tell your own story, now we're going to be creating some real impact. And so there's this big conversation about it's not journalism, it's civic information. There's this map roadmap for local news that just got released ahead of this night media forum last week. I think it's very valuable in the sense that we need the community to be a very active part of news these days. And so along those lines, we're trying to kind of take what I think is probably the most active step uh, in launching Omaha documenters. And so uh, documenters.org is the website. Um, and you'll find Omaha at the top. We're one of a handful across the country. We're their only private entity that they've partnered with. What documenters does, it's, it's a nonprofit. It serves the entire local media ecosystem. It's the reader supports it, but it's not exclusively a reader thing. It's kind of like the entertainment and arts awards, right? That became its own nonprofit. It wasn't a, for a long time, people thought that was a reader event, but it's its own event. And it's, you know, it's that way so that everybody's comfortable doing their part with it. And so what Documenters does is it hires and trains people in the community to document public meetings, what we like to call the workshops of democracy, where these decisions are made that govern your community. And it's amazing the level of you just don't know. No one's talked to you about how a city council meeting, what's the sausage behind this legislation? Why is there, you know, homes being torn out in your neighborhood or trees being cut down or why isn't your street being repaired? And so what Documenters aims to do is to build a cadre of people in the community from every community to learn that, document it, and to help their communities understand and engage with it. And so to me, that's like the pinnacle of kind of that civic information infrastructure it's the leading citizen journalism program in the country. And, and it's, I think, a, a really strong initiative to put the power of the press in the hands of the people. Let's look to the future. I mean, what is the responsibility of a community to search for, share, manage, affirm, be hungry for news, stories, knowledge about what is happening and holding people accountable within that community what is the role of a community in this? I believe organically that's happening. It just needs a little focus, concentration, and connection. When people think something's wrong, they speak up. Uh, but they do it in their networks, on their you know, social media feed. Uh, or you know, maybe their blog that their friends and their mom reads. So how do we connect those into a larger pipe, right, so that Local media now can kind of elevate that 
if the business model is reinventing itself and journalism is starved for resources, we know that people do care about the news. How do we plug them into the actual production of that news and let them drive that conversation? But again, you know, to be refereed and, and moderated because we've all been in that situation where, you know, you're trying to have a dialogue and it's the loudest person who speaks the most that kind of starts dominating and, you know, much respect for that passion, but that's not community, right? That's grandstanding and community is listening as you all know, right? The entire uh, idea around driving conversations and not talking past each other has become somewhat of a lost art because we're able to speak into the ether without consequence almost essentially and have, you know, this echo chamber and this bubble kind of be like, yeah, you're right. It's a heavy lift to put that on media. I understand journalists uh, and publishers. Why is that our responsibility? We, we just report things. I've been doing this now for you know, 29 years, it'll be 30 years. And uh, I've seen us cover a lot of things repeatedly in that time. And I've come to believe that we are not doing our best for our community if we aren't helping the community be a part of that uh, in a very active, conscientious way. And the reason... We jumped into documenters, the reason we got behind the launch of noise, um, the reason, you know, we're huge fans of Flatwater Free Press and Nebraska Examiner, of course, the Omaha Star, Mundo Latino, is to build that ecosystem and make it available and open to the community. You have been an active and continue to be an active member of a number of national associations, um, which include, for example, the Association of Alternative News Media, the National Association of Hispanic Publications, National Newspaper Publishers Association, and more. How is this national conversation shifting? What are you doing? What are you contributing to this national conversation that is being taken back into the reordering of community media? Well, that'll go back to about 2019 when I became the president of the Association of Alternative News Media. I'd been a board member for quite a while. A lot of what I learned about running an alternative news media operation, I learned from other publishers around the country, right? Super collegial group, very open. We're not competitors, right? So we talk about what works. It was my, you know, masterclass in being a publisher. It's where I first really heard about agency services and kind of launching that whole thing. It's where I learned, first heard about everything that I've ever, you know, practically learned or done. And so at that point, there was a billion dollars committed to saving local media, 300 million from Google, 300 million from Facebook when it was still Facebook and 300 million from the Knight Foundation. And they all said they cared about equity. And I, I use the word equity, not diversity, not inclusivity, but equity. And, and I think that's an important distinction. And I realized that they, none of this billion dollars was being invested in the legacy black and Hispanic press. And I just thought that was really wrong. And true to, I think, my alternative news roots, you know, we got to speak up on something like that. And so I did. I started calling around and asking people and saying, hey, you say you care about this. And uh, I wasn't getting very far. Um, Everybody's very polite and saying, yeah, you're right. We need to do something. And 
you know, and then they're kind of look at you like, what are you going to do about it? And I'm kind of like, no, you've got all the resources. You should be doing this. And what ended up happening in a, in a this is kind of like a, 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 I don't want to call it a metaphor, but it's, it's telling. There is a wonderful individual who I had met in Omaha, who I had met through the Young Professionals Council at the Greater Omaha Chamber, which yes, I did do for about three years, trying to do my part, you know, in the community. I have at times clashed and supported what the Chamber's doing and very pleased at what they've been doing lately uh, and the direction that they've taken. And so I, he uh, works at Google. I reached out to him and he connected me. So a middle-aged white guy reached out to another middle-aged white guy who connected to another middle-aged white guy who was running, you know, had a leadership position in the Google News Initiative. And talking to him, I said the same thing. He said, you're right. Uh, we should get together. And so we had a meeting January 5th at 20, and we brought Google News Initiative to the offices of the black press. And the alternative press, the Hispanic press, the black press, we all presented who we were, what we did. Google presented its diversity report card and said they had a lot of work to do. And so out of that launched a, a series of conversations. Uh, we were meeting every other week. And by that summer, the relationship had built such that we really started working together on some programs. And so over the next Year and a half, almost two years, the three associations helped run two labs with uh, Google News Initiative Labs uh, that helped 46 BIPOC publishers update their ad technology and optimize their ad technology, which created thousands of dollars in new digital, monthly digital revenues and gave them the ability to manage it and sell it directly. And so uh, it's been a big win. There's kind of another big one uh, coming up. There's a, a program that's kind of in its final stages that the associations aren't going to just consult on, but that they're going to run themselves. So I think that that's a, an awesome piece. I think that there is this growing awareness that community media, like the alternative Black and Hispanic press, play a very important part in the ecosystem, are grassroots, resilient, nimble, you know, there's been this long running, how do we diversify newsrooms? And there hasn't been a lot of progress in 30 years that this is being tracked. In fact, they quit tracking it last year because it's just not moving. And, it, and it, it is moving a little bit, but it's in this very difficult environment of, you know, the collapse of the local news business. Meanwhile, you have equity in BIPOC-owned, multi-generational media titles that with a little investment in journalism can probably do a lot. I mean, I know it can do a lot. And so there's this space of these startup nonprofits. Uh, they get a lot of attention. They're getting a lot of funding, and there's a lot of great work going on. So this is not a, you know, detract from anybody. It's a, we got an additive here we need to make sure we take care of. There's... Big investments happening around kind of mainstream media and daily newspapers or people that used to work at dailies being in nonprofits. And so just trying to steer that to the rest of the uh, community media side. I think that as there's success in these programs, there'll be more programs. We've proven as associations that we can manage these programs. We can hire the talent. We know our publishers best. We get to have that conversation that translates into that business transformation. 
that's going to be harder for anybody else. And I'm trying to build that infrastructure within the association because, you know, those three associations have 160 years of combined history of publishers helping each other out. And, you know, we want to keep that going. It feels like there's a through line from that 19-year-old you uh, railing against the inequities that you're seeing at the SoCal. And here you are some decades later also trying to rally people towards a better outcome, a better performance of their own values as well around equity. And you mentioned being in this business for a long time. What have you learned about yourself in this journey? You know, probably the biggest thing I've learned is, and I hope I show it, I I certainly don't always, it's always a work in process. But particularly the work with the Black and Hispanic press and in the the Black and Hispanic communities um, is some grace. You know, what I came to understand, and what I kind of miss maybe in this narrative in a huge way, is Sokol was a bunch of white college kids saying, we need places to listen to our music, which... It has a cultural touch and, you know, ended up being this like huge explosion, cultural explosion, but it's also pretty privileged, right? This isn't helping people feed themselves, take care of their families. I'm not saying we were fighting for our right to party, but in some ways we kind of were. And what I've learned and what's really impacted me was wondering why we're so divided and why things are so inequitable. And what I really learned in this process is it's a, it took a tremendous amount of privilege in how I was raised and the fact that I could challenge authority so easily without consequence, or if there was consequence, I had safety nets around me. And to understand, wow, look at who's operated without that and what they've overcome and how they've overcome it and how they continue to uh, show that strength, that grace, that commitment, the sense of community, I think, as well. I'd like to think that uh, really, I've had a ball. I've been able to do a lot of things, but the gifts have you know, really been mine. You know, what I've learned uh, doing this work in journalism, doing this work in these communities has taught me so much and just, I think, hopefully made me a better person and made me a lot more thoughtful. What gives you that juice that motivates you to keep doing this, to keep being at this level with the media, but also at the cutting edge of what could be? There's something in me that likes that, those new challenges. You know, I thought for a minute I could do a restaurant delivery service. (laughs) Uh, And we almost really could have, I think. And so, I mean, there's a piece of that to me. Maybe it's that wanderlust of, you know, being raised a nomad. But it's also what I've learned, the relationships I've built, uh, and all of that that's been given back to me, you know, that continues to sustain this work. And I guess if there's a third thing, uh, it just goes back to even that first story, right, where I I like poking at authority. I kind of always have. and. So I still feel like 
there's this monoculture mindset on how we're going to fix things that somebody, you know, that we need to continuously challenge. And I'm not afraid to be a big part of that because I'm fairly insulated. I mean, one of the great things about being the president at the Association of Alternative News Media and doing so much work for the black and Hispanic press is there's no other news media association that I could think of that would say, yes, we want our board president and our board and our what staff we have uh, to spend so much time helping other press associations. But that group of publishers understood the inequity and, you know, were willing to support it. I, I mean, I, I knew that I had near universal support from those publishers to do those things, even though it didn't necessarily benefit our publishers. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, finding that story that isn't told and trying to set it right gives me a charge every time. And there's a lot more stories out there. Is there a story of yours yet to be told? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see where things go now. Uh, we've opened a media consulting side of what we're doing. Uh, so a lot of the work I volunteered were, you know, over the last three years with the associations and with this media transformation piece. I've kind of limited my volunteer activities uh, recently. And so I hope there's that chapter. I'm trying to write more. I always say that I'm going to start writing. And so I, I have my first piece in editor and publisher this month. Uh, we'll see how that goes over. I'm working on my second piece and I need to start writing more for our publications. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. And Really re-engaging with my wonderful librarian and roommate and partner, the wind in my sails, the spring in my step, the twinkle in my eye, and uh, with my family. So th those are all, you know, I think new chapters and ones I'm really excited about. My guest today has been publisher, journalist, and media entrepreneur, John Heaston. John, thanks so much for sharing. Very welcome. Thanks for having me. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.